We believe all of them, parents, coaches, and facilitators, lied, cheated, and covered up their crimes. Get a good education have always been words to the wise, but as we've seen in the U.S. college admission scandal, some parents will do anything to get their children into university. Hollywood elite joined 24 others in pleading guilty to bribing some of America's best schools to admit their children for enrollment. While here in Canada, funding a university degree is an ongoing battle. Is the Premier ready to admit now that his education cuts are actually hurting students? Our government is about making sure the students are ready for the new economy. Universities are a $35 billion annual enterprise in Canada, and just over half of the country have spent time working on a university degree. Today on Context, a soul-searching look at higher education. To help us understand the university bribery scandal, we're joined now by Brandon Busty, president of Kaplan University Partners. Brandon, what kind of issues does this bribery scandal at the best schools in America raise for higher education? It's another one of uh, many examples of where the, the public has, has started to become increasingly skeptical about higher education and the value of higher education. Obviously, a lot of, a lot of people still believe in a college degree, uh, but with the cost of tuition going up as much as it has, rising over 400% in the last 30 years in the United States, and uh, certainly seeing some of the same trends globally, uh, and questions about the workforce uh, readiness of graduates. And then on top of it, you know, you see scandals like this where you realize that uh, you know, wealthy folks are, are able to get their kids in in different ways. Uh, it just all contributes to a, a real trend we have of people starting to question uh, the overall value of higher education. You argue that today's college students are the least working generation in U.S. history. Do you mean they can't find jobs or they're just not working? What's the problem? There's a number of potential drivers for that. What's interesting is if you look at this coming generation from the study that we just did of the prospective college student population, those who are now in kindergarten through 12th grade, those parents uh, see great value in work. They believe you can find purpose in work. You can learn from work. They expect their kids to work while they're in college. Uh, and so, you know, I think what we're seeing there is a pendulum shift, at least swinging back into the direction of valuing work. But right now, you look at the current, uh, current uh, college-age students between the ages of 18 and 24, for example, least likely to be working in a paid job than any generation in the past 50-some years in the United States. Brandon, you say both organizations and the educational system are not working together. What's the solution? I think more schools and universities are going to adapt more work-integrated learning opportunities. Uh, University of Waterloo, for example, which has had a long history of offering work co-op as part of its academic program. But I think what you're really going to see is employers starting to uh, move into a place where they think about education as a strategy as opposed to being what I call passive consumers of education, uh, where they're going to be actively involved in looking for talent much further upstream. Uh, identifying top talent in high school, recruiting that talent at that high school level into jobs, and then making sure that they're providing as part of the benefits and training uh, whatever credentials and degrees might help propel that person into a place of great productivity uh, or a leadership role within their organizations. Brandon Busty, president of Kaplan University Partners, thank you for joining us.
Yeah, well, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate you guys spending some time on it. Well, there was something missing in Canadian university life that our next guest felt had to be tackled. Dr. Barry Craig is the president of Huron University. And uh, Barry, you call this the university was missing its heart. What, what did you discover about getting kids ready for the workforce? Well, Lorna, I think one thing that we focus on and we do really well in Canadian post-secondary education is prepare and train the intellect of our students. But when I talk to employers and when I talk to families, that's half of our equation. The equation for human happiness, as you well know, is something to do with our intellect for sure, but it's also a lot to do with your heart and your character. And a lot of our high schools and secondary schools put a lot of emphasis on character development. But for whatever reason, when we get to university, we don't talk about it anymore. So my thought at Huron was, we would start a program which we call Leadership with Heart. The idea being to help develop students' empathy and character as much as their intellect. So we're paying attention to the heart as well as to the head. Okay, this is very unusual to say we're going to work on the students' empathy. We're going to work on their character. And um, it actually really has been a huge recruiting tool. You're one of the few universities that have seen a skyrocket in attendance. 200% increase once you took that focus onto let's make this about your heart. So what, 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 what are you triggering there? Well, when we went to schools, and this was a bit of a roll of the dice, when I spoke to faculty and the board about this program, one of the elements of it is that we require every student who attends Huron to volunteer in the community. They don't get any money for it, they don't get any credit for it. It could be at a women's shelter in Toronto, it could be the SPCA in London, it could be a refugee camp in Malawi. But every student has to give because it's something they care about, demonstrate empathy and leadership. So when we rolled this out, people said, students aren't gonna wanna do this. And I said, well, I take the experience of our youngest daughter, Catherine, herself and a group of friends she has who are very concerned about problems in the world. They want to volunteer, they want to help. And I said, I think there are more people like that out there. So we rolled it out to schools. We started recruiting two years ago with this. Last fall, our first year class doubled, a 97% increase. We're up another 83% this year in our applications. So students clearly want this. And it dovetails very nicely with um, what we're finding out about the workforce. So you're saying that basic humanities degree where everyone said, oh, forget the arts degree, it's right. useless. You actually think it's absolutely critical in the way the workforce is changing. Tell us what you guys have been drawing from uh, the human capital studies. Well, one of the first studies came out was in the United States, President Obama commission came out in December of 2016. Then this was followed uh, by the spring of 2018 by a study by the Royal Bank of Canada called Humans Wanted. Both of these studies looked at the new disruptive economy. What was going to be the effect on the economy of AI, automation, machine learning? And both of them said, look, maybe 50% of current jobs and industries are going to be displaced by these technologies. Wow. Holy cow, what are we going to do about that? And the answer these studies came out with was the human skills are the things that can't be done by machines. I think we've got a board about this. So these are the human skills that people are wanting here now. And so what we want to see is, and it was a massive study uh, by the Royal Bank, critical thinking, coordination, social perceptiveness, active listening, complex problem solving. And do you think a general humanities degree helps with this? Absolutely. Those are the skills that a liberal arts degree focuses on. Reading across different contexts, thinking critically, communicating orally and in writing, <laughs> teamwork, trying to think about different disciplines and how they interact, those soft skills, we used to call them, are now being called essential skills. 
Those are the things that you can't hand off to a machine. Those are the things that are particularly human. So why wouldn't we emphasize those? Why wouldn't we focus on that? Because hopefully we're going to be training humans who will be programming the machines. Exactly. And the artificial intelligence is not so only artificial, it's actually got a person's values shaping it. Absolutely. There's a core ethical component to this that can't be replaced. We have to make decisions about what technologies we want to develop, how they're going to be deployed, and what technologies we want to avoid. Those are human ethical decisions that are rooted in our values and principles. And how unique is it that this has to come out of a small university like Huron, which is part of a very large university, Western, but Huron is the Anglican Church of Canada's school for, for, for I was going to say centuries, but at least a century. In many ways, it's easier to do it at a small school. Uh, we don't have as many competing interests. We don't have a, a hundred different programs on the go, all jockeying for position. Here we could go, put forward a vision, say let's go all in and see if it works, and it's worked. All right, Barry Craig, president of Huron University, getting back to that general liberal arts degree. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Lorna. Well, more on putting heart into a university education. How would you feel as a taxpayer if you knew your university dollars were being spent on paying for a course in love and friendship? Professor Sarah McDonald teaches just such a course at Huron University. Why do we need, why do we need funding courses in love and friendship? <laughs> well, the course itself is part of a larger program, a Global Great Books program where we um, ask students to engage in the most influential texts across the world, um, thinking about what does it mean to be human, what does it mean to be happy, and recognizing that they don't have to just start from scratch. People have been thinking about these things, struggling with them for forever. Wow. It, and, and, and this is a different generation because their best friend, you feel, has changed. The best friend dynamic in a student's life. Explain what you mean. Well, I think uh, most parents have struggled with the idea of ha giving their children phones, but recognizing that that's a losing battle. Um, most students, young people, the only way that they connect with the rest of the world, including their friends, is through the phone. And so the phone has become a kind of substitute in many ways for actually engaging with real people. So you can be on Twitter, you can be on Facebook, you can be on Snapchat. You don't have to know any of the people that you're actually communicating with, but you do know that phone so intimately. And so many, so many people, myself included, I have to admit, when I lose my phone, I have a, a moment of crisis. It's as though I've lost a part of myself. And so one of the difficulties with that, though, I recognize in, in my own life, is that I find that I'm isolated from others, and I, I have a real sense sometimes of loneliness. And so this particular course on love and friendship asks students to think about what does it mean to be a good friend? What does it mean to be a partner, a husband, a wife, a mother, a child? and really to begin to think about and wonder why it is that those relationships have been, in whatever culture you're part of, whatever your faith, they have been instrumental in what it means to be a human and to have a happy human life. And is this essential for getting that job after university? I think it is absolutely essential in getting that job because what we find out um, is that these students, they read um, these influential works from across history, different places, different cultures. They learn about what it means to be a friend in maybe an African culture, in an ancient Greek world. We think about it in the contemporary world. And what they gain is a kind of empathy. And they recognize not just the things that 
are different about people in different cultures, but they recognize what unites us. And that then allows them to go into the workplace. They're able to empathize with their coworkers. They're able to build those interpersonal skills. They know how essential and important they are. And one of the key things about, I think, a, a good friendship or to be a good lover is that you actually um, put the emphasis on willing the good for the other. And so, of course, if you go to a workplace, that's what your employer wants you to be able to do, to put uh, the ro your role in that company, whatever it might be, in the school, whatever it is, your students, to put their good before yourself. A whole different approach to skills Absolutely. for the workplace. Sarah McDonald of Huron University, stay with us. We're going to have you back on our panel to discuss the pros and cons of putting Christianity into a university degree. That's coming up. Well, no discussion about university would be complete without asking about student debt. Joining us now is uh, Lori Campbell from Credit Canada. Lori, what are you hearing from university students about student debt? Well, you know, a lot of them are so overwhelmed. They're finishing school and they have a student loan, maybe about $10,000, uh, give or take, unless they've gone to higher education or that's what they've relied on solely. But the bigger problem is we're seeing a lot of individuals that are finishing with huge credit card debts, you know, not just one. We're looking at three, four, five. And then on top of that, they may have student lines of credit through the bank or student loans through the bank, which are separate from government student debt. So we're seeing a mishmash of, of uh, problems that these young people are experiencing. And on top of that, let's face it, they're not getting that ideal job with the six-figure income that they may have led themselves to believe they'd get. Okay, so give us your advice. Student debt, what do families and students need to watch out for? It sounds like credit cards. Credit card, absolutely. You know, if you're if you're in school and you're being tempted to apply for a credit card, I'd say absolutely not unless you're in third or fourth year you're, you're working and, and you understand the, the, the rules of engagement. It means you pay it off every month. You don't, don't use it for your necessities because that means you're in trouble and you're not going to be able to pay this off. With interest rates at between 19 and 24%, once you get behind, it's almost impossible to catch up. But those universities are getting, are allowing credit card companies to come recruit on campus first-year students, aren't they? Absolutely, and it's it's kind of shocking. That's why we're seeing so many students finish with high credit card debts. And you know, that's my my number one piece of advice: is stay away from these high interest debts. Um, you know, if you're getting a student loan, make sure you understand that's for the full uh, semester. You should get topped up again in the, in the in the new year for the rest of the the year. Make sure you use that judiciously. A lot of people spend that within the first month or two, and then they have nothing to rely on, so they start using other forms of credit. Okay, so your advice on the return on investment, is it worth it? Your university education, uh, your debt risk? It's still good debt, absolutely. I, I'm a big believer in higher education. Uh, pick, your, pick your education carefully. Know where the market's going with certain careers, and understand where you're going to be fin when you finish. I mean, a lot of students that we see coming in here are not willing to take a, a job just to get themselves on their feet. They want that plum job that's, you know, they kind of been promised uh, throughout university or college. And let's face it, you got to start at the bottom sometimes. And all we right. need to all be, we've all been there. Okay, Lori Campbell, <laughs> CEO of the nonprofit Credit Canada. Thank you for being a watchdog. Credit Canada has watched Canada's debt for the last 50 years. Thank you for joining us for protecting students. Thank you. My pleasure. A university tragedy where 18-year-old Jack Windler died by suicide in his first year at Queen's University 
has led to a national movement on mental health care for students. Brian Young is a representative from Jack.org. Hi, Brian. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm really impressed at how um, Jack's parents and their friends believed we've got to talk about the mental health battles students are having. I look at the, um, the sit-in that was at University of Toronto, uh, the outcry at Concordia saying, we've got to talk, don't be so silent as a university. Why is it important to talk about suicide risk? You know what? Uh, suicide is the number one health-related cause of death for young people in Canada. Why is the risk factor increased at university? It's a lot of pressure for a young person. And if we're not talking about how to handle those pressures properly, then we're setting up young people to fail in our institutions of higher learning. And that's not acceptable to us. So what are the concrete ways that Jack.org and others of us can change this? Yeah, so I think the, the first thing that, that we need to do, and this is something that we've been doing since the inception of Jack.org, is to raise awareness around mental health. You know, it is so important that young people, and frankly everyone, but young people know about mental health, know about mental illness, and know how mental health affects every single one of us. You know, there are so many misconceptions about the differences between mental health and mental illness. We all have mental health, meaning that we all should be talking about it. You know, and then I think right now, we've been doing so uh, well at, at promoting and talking about and raising awareness about mental health. We're now in a situation in our society, especially for young people, where we know about mental health. We know um, how our mental health can, can be challenged by things in our lives or by university. What we don't know is how to access the proper supports. What we don't know is how to support someone in need. And I think that's the next step for us. How do we be there for other folks who are loved ones or peers or uh, our friends and our family? How do we support them? How do we be there for them in their time of need? And that's what we're working on currently. Okay, so Brian Young, you've got some great resources there at jack.org. Thank you for joining us. And we will say to our audience, if you or someone you know is struggling with mental health issues, please do go to the resources we have on our screen, and we will also include those on our website. Remember, there's our prayer lines as well. Coming up, getting practical. Rob Luke strategizes with companies and employees to provide skills that aren't taught in school, but needed in the workplace. Plus, how do you navigate putting faith into our education? The role of Canada's Christian voice in university life. We speak with three professors on that, coming up. So, a high IQ may garner you success in life and career, but what about emotional intelligence? Context producer Susan Ponting went to find that answer with career consultant Rob Luke. Take a look. Well, emotional intelligence really is the measure of an abil one's ability to understand kind of the emotions that are occurring within them, um, be able to regulate them, and be able to connect to the emotions with others. But most importantly, it's also to be able to apply those constructively to different situations. And there is such a thing as too much emotional intelligence. So crying every time you hear a story, going up and hugging everyone that you see, getting involved in everyone's life when it is a work relationship at a certain point. Organizations are becoming much more 
matrix, they're becoming flat, they're multiple generations in the workforce, multiple cultures, and so we really have to navigate those. We have to navigate those quite well, and that all becomes interpersonal skills. It's our ability to understand another person's point of view, adjust our style for that, really get a good understanding as to how we're coming across. Like, how am I making you feel right now? Am I making you feel warm, intimidated? I need to know those things. When we come into a room now, especially with a lot of our virtual offices, we spend all of our time apart, so we're, we don't really have those natural water cooler interactions as much anymore in a lot of my organizations. So when we come together, like we really have to pay even more attention to developing those relationships. And there's not one organization that I'm touching right now that's not tired. There's just there's change and agility. There's a reason why we're looking at resilience as the number one competency for people, really having that positive outlook. And as we talked about emotional intelligence, the ability to handle stress is one of it optimism, good, good healthy habits is, is one of those things that almost anyone needs to have nowadays because there's not one organization that's going to stay stable for the next six months. So we're not talking about five-year plans anymore. We're talking about one to two-year max. At the age of disruption, where you have industries that are being created that never were created before, right? Like Uber is the one that's really showcased that, where it's really disrupted the taxi industry, and now you have a lot of these technologies that are really going after some pretty stable business models. And an organization is a living structure as well. The people in it make up that organization. So if that organization is going through so much turmoil, the poor people are going through that much turmoil as well. We have so much on our plate. We're constantly bombarded, our email, our phone, we're constantly on, and, and there's no end to it, right? And then there's this constant change that's going on within our workplace. And we haven't really created good habits of pause. And it's this idea, it's not work-life balance anymore, it's work-life separation. So it's really the, the, uh, the, the quality over the quantity of time. You're watching Context beyond the headlines. Well, and into the process of university education in Canada, we add now the persistent movement of Christian universities, nine of them across Canada, which do not receive government funding, but are growing. Joining me, Sarah McDonald from Huron University, Robert Graham, president of Redeemer University, and our context columnist, Professor John Stackhouse, joins us by Skype from the Christian university he teaches at, Crandall University in New Brunswick. And uh, Robert, let's start with you because uh, Redeemer University, not receiving government funding, was voted in the Christian and University mm -hmm. Colleges rankings as the place where students were the happiest. Yes. Is there something about bringing your faith to school? What do you, what do you credit that to? So uh, there's a couple of reasons. One is bringing the faith. That is really important. Our students do come because of the Christian atmosphere and the environment that we have, but also the community that we have and the sense of belonging. Uh, my wife Cheryl and I have dinner with students uh, every week, different group of students, and we always ask them, what is the best thing? What do you enjoy most about it? And uh, they continually remark about the dorm yes. life and the community that's established and the friendships that they have. Okay, so let's go to Professor John here out there at Crandall. John, why not just leave you, uh, the Christian education component to the churches? Why does it need to be in universities that are fighting for their financial life as privately funded Christian universities across Canada? For the last 20 years of my career, I've spent in Christian higher education because I fear that you can go to church the rest of your life 
and you'll never get taught the things you need to get taught. You'll never get a survey course on, on the whole Bible. You'll never get a, a survey of all of Christian thought and how it holds together. You'll never be taught ethical reasoning to take on the difficult issues of the world. This is the kind of thing we talk about all the time at a Christian university. Professor Sarah, at Huron College, where you teach, you have the combination of being an Anglican uh, private university, but you're tacked into the family of Western. Mm -hmm. So you have students of all faiths attending. And what do you see the advantage of bringing the Christian story into the educational process? Well, what I find, excuse me, Many of our students don't have a particular faith background or they come from a different faith than the Christian faith. And so when we read books, sacred texts like the Bible, works of literature like Dante, works of philosophy, Augustine, students come to see Christianity in a way that they recognize it as something that's beautiful, something that makes sense. And then the question of whether or not this is a faith-based tradition comes in the back door for them. So at first they're attracted to the reasoning, to the logic, to the beauty and then their hearts are moved when they recognize that this is a pathway that they might indeed embark on themselves. And it's not, um, it's not an easy thing for families to finance or students to finance this. And Robert, at Redeemer, you took a 42% chop in education starting in fall, your tuition. Right. You're, you're knocking the price down because it was a barrier, right? It's, it was. Because there is no government funding. And Correct. Tell us about the decision to do that for students. So our tuition for this fall was all set to be about $17,000 a year. And we were prepared for that. Which is almost double a, a, a typical Canadian university. That's right. Which our tax dollars pay for, you know, four or $5,000 every student that's coming out of our tax budget. At the Christian University, you, you carry that on your own. Right. So we were trying to be good stewards of the money that we were receiving, at both in tuition and gifts and other things but it was just not sufficient. The cost of actually delivering quality education continued to increase mm -hmm. faster than inflation, faster than family incomes. So what we did is we tried to think about creatively about how we could address this. And we had some supporters that came along that were also passionate about making Christian higher education affordable for students. And we came up with a plan that's going to allow us to drop the tuition rate by um, 42% down to $9,800 a year from now until 2023, and from there on only to have small increments above that. Okay, John, is that the reality? Is that until Christian universities can figure out a funding model, they're going to be a very small player in the building up of the Canadian culture? Well, yes, out in the thrifty Maritimes, we've been keeping our tuition about that low actually for some time because there isn't a, a lot of extra money around and it, it is uh, being called upon in lots of other ways. Governments have cut back steadily on education where they've maintained some kind of funding for healthcare, And it's been catastrophic at the public university as well as at the private university. It's very expensive to do this. It's a big investment for parents and for children. But as I suggest, uh, it's, the return on investment is, is literally incalculable. It's the rest of your life. You either live it as an intelligent and informed Christian. That's why I went to Bible school. That's why I went to a Christian graduate school after university. Because what I was getting from Queens, what I was getting from InterVarsity and Navigators and crew, all of that was really helpful. But to put it together in one's mind and in one's heart requires a sustained attention to these matters. And I just don't think you're going to get that from an InterVarsity group and you're not going to get it from church. 
Thank you, Professor John Stackhouse, our regular blogger. Every week, learn with Professor John on our website. And uh, Sarah, thank you very much from Huron College. We appreciate you being with us. Bob Graham from Redeemer, thank you. And I'll be right back with my wrap. I am a fan of lifelong learning and the oldest of wisdom literature, Proverbs, says this, the starting point for acquiring wisdom is to be consumed with awe of God. We've got great learning on that at our website where you can also learn more about today's guests and our topic. So for all of our team at Context, I'm Lorna Duick. Thank you for watching.